Welcome to the Browser Podcast, Writers We Admire, in which we talk to writers we admire. I'm Robert Cottrell, editor of the Browser, and I'm joined today at the Groucho Club in London by Ian Leslie, whom we admire as a very distinguished writer of long-form features for The Guardian and The New Statesman. He's written books on American politics, on the nature of curiosity, on why people lie, and he has a parallel life in the advertising industry. So, Ian, welcome to the podcast. Very glad to be here. Thank you. So, Ian, let, let me start on that, on that last point, your life in the advertising industry. Can you say a little bit about what your work in advertising involves and whether it crosses over in some way to make you a different or even a better writer? It's parallel and, and then intersecting. It was my first career, right? So, so I started out in, in advertising approximately a, a century ago at a place called JWT. Uh, I was a, a strategist. Um, they call them planets, although there's not much planning involved. But, but it's the people who work out what the, the essence of the message should be and who it's targeted at. And then you kind of work with the creatives to, to bring it to life. And, and it's really kind of fascinating. It's the most intellectually stimulating part of, of advertising, right? Because you, you have to understand consumers and how they think and how they, how they behave. And that involves all sorts of different things, culture and so on. And I had a lot of fun with that. I did some very big jobs. And then about 10 years ago, I thought uh, I would like to see if I can get a writing career of, of some kind off the ground before it's too late, before I totally give up. Because it was something I always had at the back of my mind. Um, and so I went... Uh, effectively part-time, so I went freelance as a strategist, which, and, and that's something I still do. So I still consult with, with businesses and brands on, on, on brand strategy and that kind of thing. But then I started this, this parallel career in writing, and, and it's worked out pretty well. You know, I've got that, that, got that going. But, but yeah, so the question is now, you know, people say, oh, do you want to kind of get rid of the advertising, that, you know, stop doing that altogether and just be a full-time writer? Not particularly. Actually, now that I've got one foot outside of it, I appreciate it more. One of the things about being a writer, um, as you know, is you, you spend a lot of time by yourself. <laughs> that can drive you a little bit mad. And it can also mean that you, uh, you miss the kind of like the buzz and the information flow, just the kind of general sense of being engaged in the world that you get from being around people and going into an office or, or having meetings and so on. So I, I'm very happy to, to keep both going. And yeah, it definitely gives me a kind of insight and a, a, a channel into the world of business and, and marketing in particular. And there's always kind of interesting things going on there. I feel lucky in the sense that um, I, I, you know, I have this other source of income and also, you know, part of that is it gives me freedom in my writing to write about whatever I want, right? Mm. I'm not particularly beholden to, because I'm, you know, obviously I'm not employed by anybody, but also, you know, I can really just follow my nose and find out what I think is interesting. When I think back over the pieces of yours that we've recommended on the browser, the subject have been incredibly diverse. I mean, I think of interrogation techniques, I think of nutrition when you were diving into the selling of sugar, the Mona Lisa and the theft thereof. How do you decide what stories to tell? And I suppose that's even more of a decision when it comes to a book. What persuades you that lying or curiosity is worth a year of your life? First thing to say about this is that I, I, I'm really bad at it. I, I find it an agony every time to, to arrive at and decide that this, I'm going to write about this. And, that, and that's sort of tripled or quadrupled when it comes to, to a book. 
right? So, so I, I don't want people to give the impression that, you know, I'm constantly coming up with brilliant ideas and writing them and it's all, all fun. I find it really hard, but actually harder than a lot of, lot of people, I think, to, to settle on something and say, okay, this is what I want to devote time to. And then, of course, you have to find someone else who's, who's willing to, to publish it. But it, it comes from part of all, you know, what I've learned to do is make a note of everything I do find interesting, even half ideas. So I think, okay, it might be interesting to write about that. I have it in a, in a Gmail draft. Um, it's quite long. It's full of slightly kind of, you know, batshit ideas. And I'm like, well, what was that about? Um, but when I go back and, and reread it, you know, invariably there'll be something where I go, actually, that connects with that now. And that actually makes a for, a for a piece, right? Not just a half thought, not just a theme, not just an interesting little snippet. So um, I, I'm getting better at it. I'm trying to kind of, you know, cultivate my, my store of thoughts and half thoughts and ideas. But it's, it's, I just never find it easy. Any, mm. Anybody's notebooks are invariably fantastically fertile reading because uh, the ideas that they decided to pursue are not always the ones that with hindsight, you know, you would wish them to I, I think that I think that would be good. I, I, I also I connects to another idea that, uh, sort of fantasy idea that, that, that will never happen. But... I think there should be a website where uh, established writers um, contribute their first drafts. All these brilliant writers you see in the New Yorker or, or you know whoever it is, and you say you know here's the first draft of that brilliant article that you thought was wonderful in the work of you know genius. Look how it started out. It was terrible, absolutely terrible. I just think it would be a great source of inspiration. And, and it, it, it would be sponsored by the editors of the world, who I suspect feel yeah, that right. um, yeah, yeah. They, they generally get they would, squeezed out in true. the, they, in they, the they, race for public acclaim. But it, would, but it would help people through those despairing for, you know, moments when they're like, oh, this is just terrible. Speaking of editors, I guess we can agree that Jonathan Shaden has done fantastic work on the long-form franchise at The Guardian. Yeah, I mean, I, I, he and his team have made a, a success. It's a very bold move from, from, from The Guardian, right, to, to do it in the first place, right? We should say that, you know, it was a great... And, and they did it decisively, right? They said, we're going to do this. It's going to be in the middle of the paper. Um, we're going to hire somebody, you know, a really good editor who's got expertise. So that they didn't do it by half measures. They really went for it. Um, and they did hire, you know, Jonathan to... To, to Ellen, and he's a fantastic editor. Mm. David um, Wolfe also. And David Wolfe is also a fantastic mm. editor who works as uh, Jonathan's deputy. And um, yeah, I learn every time I write a piece for them, you know, I, I get better as a writer, um, which isn't true, you know, of, of all editors, even good editors, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that with quite the mm. same conviction. But with, with them, I kind of go, yeah. You know, um, these these guys are real experts in shaping these these long form um, mm. stories. So yeah, I, I've been edited and I've been an editor, so I know, you know why it is that editors do what they do. I can't think of a single time when I've enjoyed being edited at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny because I, I I I really like the the process of reading the the, the first time I get a, a draft back. You know, mm. with, with notes, right. I have the reaction most people have, which is, oh, how dare you? Oh, what nonsense. Once I've got over that, I actually do really enjoy it. Um, and in fact, I enjoy it, the, the process of revising and addressing their, their, their questions and, and edits and so on, much more enjoyable than I do actually generating the thing in the first place. Mm. What anyway, I find is, is writing the first draft, that's what I find. Yeah, anyway. So what writers and publications did you admire? I read a piece on, on Medium a couple of years back called Malcolm Gladwell is Underrated. Um, I still think he's underrated, actually, you know, despite his huge success. Um, I don't think people, you know, people who consider themselves very clever are not fans of Malcolm Gladwell, right? They think he's sort of 
to pop to a little bit beneath them. He kind of, I, I don't think they quite understand like how brilliant he is. How hard it is to do what he does. The, the other New Yorker writer I hugely admire um, is Adam Gopnik. Just immense erudition um, combined with wit and fun. He kind of slips between these high and low registers. So he makes you feel like not like you're getting a lecture, even though he's kind of uh, drawing on a deep well of knowledge. You never feel like uh, you're, you're kind of in some dry old lecture. You know, the Atlantic's doing very well. Um, in Britain, the New Statesman has... I, think, I mean, your writing. presence in the New Statesman, I think, is part and parcel of a, a, a real kind of flourishing of... Uh, of that magazine, I suppose, essentially since since Jason Cowley took over there. Uh, yeah, I think Jason Cowley has done a fantastic uh, job revitalising the magazine. I'd also put a word for Helen Lewis, his his deputy, yes. uh, very important to that to that magazine's success. And and they they have yeah, it's it's a it's a place for great writing, right? Which wasn't really before. It's a place for sort of interesting political views. But now I just feel like it's incredibly vital, lively, mm. loads of different views, loads of, kind of lots of great articles and lots of different subjects going on. And uh, I, I just think in, in Britain, it's the best uh, mm. magazine, it's the best source of, of great new writing. I, I look forward to it every week, which was, yes. uh, which was not always the case. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's not only because you know, Jason Cowley's got great taste, but also he's still capable of surprising you. Like bringing on Simon Heffer to do some stuff is you know, not at all what you would have predicted. Yeah, there's a great sense of um, freedom about that place mm. now. The next question is a, a slightly personal one. You always maintain your composure. You've got a perfect uh, you know, kind of self-control and calm and like 1% irony. And I wonder you know, if there are things which really make you angry and if make you want to rant on the page. This is a, a good question. It's one, it's one I, I worry about, because actually I think I'm a little bit too calm, a little bit too different. That's sometimes what I think, because actually, you know, anger is a great fuel of... Uh, it's, it's a fuel for great writing, right? And I have found, you know, on, on the rare occasions when I have converted some feeling of anger into writing, you know, I, I do really good stuff. So, so I would say, actually, my piece on sugar, the, the sugar conspiracy for, for, for The Guardian... When I was writing that, I, I felt angry. You know, I felt angry about what's going on now. And the, the way we're, the truth has been spun and we're, we're being deceived by people who really ought to know better. The, the sort of two-word phrase in my head when I was writing that piece was cold fury. And, and, and I think part of the reason that piece was so popular um, is that that, that that came through. But I don't want to go around, you know, trying to get angry about things. I, the fact is, this is the kind of person I am. <laughs> there's no point trying to force it. And God knows there's, a, you know, there's no shortage of people being angry at the moment and, and you know, uh, getting outraged at everything. So I just think my role is, you know, in, in the world is probably to, to step back a little and be a little bit more detached. Yeah, you're, you're one of the rare moderating forces on Twitter, I think. And by the way, Ian Leslie is very well worth following on Twitter. Mr Ian Leslie, MR Ian Leslie. There are plenty of things to be genuinely outraged about, but but Twitter, Twitter is a kind of trap to kind of exaggerate and amplify your thing. Suddenly you find yourself having opinions about and being outraged about things you didn't even know you cared about. You know, you, you thought, why, why do I have an opinion about what Taylor <laughs> Swift said to, you know... So I think on Twitter, as, as, as in all things, you have to say, well, what's my role here? There are lots of other people getting outraged about that. I don't think that I need to pile on here. I will, you know, maybe think about it in, from a slightly different angle. Last question. What are you thinking about now? What sort of directions do you think are promising? I'm just finishing a book proposal. 
which I'm quite excited about. It's related to what we were just saying about the, the sort of discourse on, on, on Twitter and social media. It's, it's not, not specifically about social media and Twitter, but it is about the way that, that conversations can quickly flare up into to arguments and, and conflict and how people, and how people manage that. Now, one of the things I'm, I'm, I am, you know, really care about is the quality of discourse and, you know, how people conduct themselves in, in, in conversation, in debate. And, you know, in terms of my social media feeds, my Twitter feed, for example, um, I filter much more on how people debate, talk, interact and reflect than I do on their on ideology. I try and get a, a mix of, of, of left and right. I'm, I'm you know, left, left of centre, but I try and, try and get, get a good mix. But my real discriminating factor is, you know, how does this person interact? How do they think? Um, are they able to detach themselves from, from, from their own kind of instincts and look at them kind of objectively? Um, do they give other people respect most of the time when, when, they're, when they're talking to them? That, I think, is, a, is an art and a skill, and I'd like to sort of investigate that a bit. OK, well, Ian, Leslie... Thank you so much. And when it comes to respect, uh, you've certainly got the respect for the browser. Oh, well, thank you very much. And I love the browser, so thank you very much for your... I was just about to ask you for a testimonial. Thank you very much (laughs) indeed. Okay, so if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to the browser, which you can do for $34 a year by going to thebrowser.com. The browser recommends the best five or six pieces of writing worth reading each day. Please subscribe. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you.